Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather in your name because of you and what you have done for us. Because of the salvation, the righteousness that you offer to us, we can gather like this to worship you, to learn from your word. This morning, our minds especially go to the people of Ukraine. I just pray that your hand of protection will be over them. And we pray for those who are um, expressing this hatred toward each other. Pray that their hearts could be drawn to you. And pray for your protection over the the Christians there and the missionaries and many who are striving to serve you. May you guide them and keep them. Just thank you for your word. Thank you for the message that John has prepared this morning. May you guide him and may you give him a clear mind to, to think and to share what you have laid upon his heart. In Jesus' name, amen. I made this big decision a little while ago. I don't remember what it was, which probably goes to show that many times a simple choice can prove to be essential, even though it often might appear inconsequential. I must have been distracted when I left my home because left or right, I'm sure I went. I wonder which it was. Anyway, I never veered. I walked in that direction totally absorbed, it seems, in quiet introspection. For no reason I can think of, I've wandered far astray. And that is how I got to where I find myself today. I want to talk about choices today. Um, interesting enough, our Sunday school talk some about choices. And this wasn't really planned. I had something else that I was kind of going down, and it, it maybe some other time, it, it just didn't work out this time. So uh, I went back to one of the earlier sermons I had, I had done and um, made some changes as we always do if we do that sort of thing, but choices. Uh, choices today, big choices, little choices, important choices, uh, maybe some not so important choices. Now who can tell me the definition of a choice? Simple. Um, if you have to, you can Google it, but what's a choice? A decision, okay. Um, what is necessary in a choice? What, what are some factors that are necessary to even have a choice? There you go, thank you. Um, can you make a choice if there's only one option? Well, that's two options, though. Okay, so obviously for a choice to take place, there needs to be more than one option, even if it is only, thank you Brian, not choosing to do that option. And sometimes it would seem much easier if there was only one option. Um, sometimes in life we wish there wouldn't be a choice, that we were forced to do something because that would eliminate our need to decide. Not all choices are easy. It would be nice if all choices were, we say, black and white, uh, where one is obviously the best decision and the other one is obviously not the best. But too often, choices need to be made between two options that may, at the time, look equally good. And we're left to try and determine which one might be better. Or unfortunately, sometimes neither option looks good 
And so we have to decide between what we call the lesser of two evils. Um, we don't really like either option, but there they are. We are forced to do one or the other, and so we have to decide that. So how do we make wise choices? How also then do we know which choices are important and which choices are not? Um, how do we give adequate consideration to the important choices but not waste important time on the insignificant ones? So it would be nice to leave here today with a, a five-step process of how to make the best choices. Um, if I would have that, I would have certainly given it to you. I don't. But I do want to look at some um, examples, illustrations. Uh, every decision is different, so it's impossible to address every situation or to find a direct answer to every decision. Like I said, we'll look at some of the principles from God's Word and also some examples from people in the Bible. Uh, as I said before, I believe the, those accounts are given to us so we can learn from them. And I had to, had to think, you know, imagine how it would be if your life was recorded in its entirety, um, the good choices as well as the bad, for people a thousand years from now to read about and discuss in their sermons in Sunday schools, uh, which things you did right, which things you didn't do right, um, how, how many of us would like for our life to be an unending open book for people to look at. But thankfully, we, do, we are given some examples like that. The little poem I read at the beginning reminds us that if we are not intentional in our choices, we will probably not end up where we want to be. Galatians 6, verse 7 says, Don't be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. So what we have done, that is going to bring a result. Uh, some more questions. When do we start making choices? What age do we start making choices? Newborn? Okay. So how does a newborn make a choice? They scream. Okay. Um, do they then choose maybe not to scream? Oh, so, well, sometimes, yeah, that's good. Um, well, so are we ever too young to start making good choices? I see some people shaking their heads, okay? So hopefully today, um, this can be some for the children as well. Um, back, to, back to your comment about a newborn. Um, whether a newborn realizes it or not, it is hopefully forced with a choice. And the choice is to continue doing what it naturally is inclined to do, he or she, or to suffer the consequences of that choice. Hopefully that is something that um, a newborn learns fairly early on. God gave us parents to guide us as we learn to make choices. And when we are really young, um, we, learn to, we learn that from them, our parents that poor choices um, often bring punishment, little pain. Um, and that is, unfortunately, the way a newborn sometimes has to be taught, simply um, learning that if I do this, this is going to be the result. Uh, parents, you are responsible for establishing in your child's mind that a consequence will follow a poor choice. And yes, uh, a reward also sometimes follows a good choice. But as we grow older, we learn that the good choices are kind of expected, reward or not, um, but the bad choices are, do bring consequences. And I think, 
I think there is a balance there between offering a reward, which is a good thing, but also simply offering a consequence uh, when there is a bad choice that is made. Our choices determine our outcome in life, in this life, and also in the next life, in eternity. Poor choices will bring good, poor choices will not bring good results, but God does honor wise choices that glorify Him. So a few questions to ask when faced with a decision, with a choice, and again, this can apply to all our ages. Uh, The first question is, has God, or as children we can ask, have, have my parents already addressed this? Have they already spoken about this? And just a quick example, a great example, is one of the first choices that were made by mankind. Um, If you want to, it's up to you, it's a familiar passage, Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat it, you will surely die. So here God gave a very, very clear instruction to Adam. And I think if we read on down, this was when only Adam was there. Um, Eve was not yet in the picture. But it was very clearly stated, you shall not. So children or youth, when one of your friends comes with a great idea, um, stop and think for a minute. Did mom and dad already tell me not to do this? And, you know, if they did, that should be pretty obvious right there. And it should have been for Adam. Um, I assume he discussed this then with his new wife. And somewhere along the way, uh, well, we read on here. Chapter 3, the first six verses. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Hath God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? But the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you will eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. For when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. So here the serpent was tempting Eve. And God had already spoken um, what he would and would not allow them to do, and now that was being questioned. The serpent asked, did God really say that? And, you know, as, as children, um, your friends may ask, did your parents really say you shouldn't do that? Um, and you stop to think, um, did they actually say that or didn't they? And this should have been a stopping point for Eve right then. Um, she knew what God had said, and someone questioning it should have raised what we call a red flag right there in her mind. And she should have stopped and said, no, um, we know what God said. Um, we know what our parents said, and we know that, that is not right. And obviously, we also look at a, another aspect of choices here in that Eve was rejecting what she knew God wanted her to do. And we look at um, the most important choice in our life. Do we choose to follow God or do we not? And right here, Eve was making that choice not to follow God. But I would also like us to think about the aspect that, you know, she was familiar with what God had said. Um, this should have instantly caused her to be on guard when there was a, something that came contrary to that. So parents, are we filling our children with truth? So they recognize the lies when they come around, 
Um, obviously, Eve did not spend enough time contemplating the truth that she did not recognize this lie when it was presented to her. Uh, for children, there always seems to be a friend or two, especially in grade school, who's very well informed about the facts of life. I think we probably all had a friend like that when we were young. I know I did. Um, be careful, children. Those facts are not always true. For adults, we are bombarded by news, by information from every side. And this might shock you, but not all that you hear and read and see is true. We know that. Um, we need to be discerning. Even among good things, Christian books, podcasts, things that hopefully not, but could come across this pulpit or even other pulpits, um, are they completely true? What is true, what is half true, what is completely false? And only a clear understanding, a foundation of God's truth will expose those lies. So when faced with the big decision, our first move should be to see if Scripture or parents or some other authority figure, whatever it is in our life, if they have already given a direct answer to that. In Matthew chapter 4, we have another account of Satan tempting. I'm sorry. If you touch your notes in the wrong place, they jump around. There we go. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, the first 11 verses. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. When he, was, he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And the devil took him into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and said to him, All these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus answered, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So here we see Jesus at a very vulnerable place in life. Um, he was physically weak. He had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Um, he was, had been baptized. He had been affirmed by God. And he was preparing to start his ministry. And he was allowed to go through these temptations. I think, again, as an example to us. Now, we hardly look at these temptations even as choices because Jesus spent no time even considering these. And yet, he did make choices here. Uh, immediately, he answered with Scripture to refute these temptations. And that may be one of the, uh, the best ways of, of um, combating a bad choice is to think. Um, yeah, we talked about, you know, did we hear it say, did God say it? But did he say it through his word? And we might wish that a verse would pop up every time we encounter a decision, um, would clearly tell us what to go. There are times I'm certainly envious of John here, who I think he can quote nearly every verse in the Bible, right John? Uh, pretty, pretty, much. pretty much, yep. And he can also give us the chapter and verse where it's found. Um, and I will say, he is one who has chose to spend many hours filling his mind with truth here, and that is a great example. The more we fill our mind um, with truth, the more readily it is available when we need it. 
Uh, Joseph in the Old Testament, another example, when he was tempted with the decision, he immediately recognized it as a sin against God, and he didn't waste any time even considering it as a choice. He recognized that, because he was, again, given a choice, but he immediately recognized it as wrong, as not even worth considering, um, and fled from the scene there. So whether it's a verse, uh, maybe something we read, devotional, words of a song, um, God has given us his word to guide us in times of decision. And as Jesus said here, it is written. Basically, he was telling Satan, there really is no discussion here. There, there's, no, there's, nothing to, there's nothing more to say. It is written. It's the way it is. It's a fact. Um, the, the choice has already been made. So sometimes those big decisions are the easy decisions. Um, they may be hard, but they're easy to know what's right and wrong. Uh, what do we do when something is not clearly spelled out in the Bible? Uh, there's, there's lots of decisions in life that we cannot find a chapter and verse that we can go to and say, well, here it says such and such. So point number two, uh, what do my spiritual advisors, authorities, um, parents again, have to say about this? Proverbs eleven fourteen says, where there is no counsel, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. So if there's no one to help, um, people stumble, people fall. But if you surround yourself with good advice, there is safety. So it's very important to surround ourselves with people that we can trust to give good advice. And as adults, that's very true. Um, as children, um, you don't have much of a choice. Your parents are there, whether you want them there or not. And hopefully they are a source of good advice. But as teenagers and children, adults, um, we have a choice of who we associate with. Um, do we have a friend or even a mentor that we can turn to for advice, someone we can trust? Um, and do we take that advice then? If we, if we turn to someone for advice, it's important that we listen to good advice. Uh, as a count in 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 12, I'll read the account, so longer here, but I'll read it. 1 Kings chapter 12, the Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. So it happened when Jeroboam the son of Nebat heard that he was, heard it, he was still in Egypt, for he had fled from the presence of King Solomon, and had been dwelling in Egypt, that they sent and called. And then Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, so they came, uh, Rehoboam was, was the new king, um, and my understanding is he went to Shechem to make that official, and then um, the people came to him, and they said, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore, tighten the burdensome, lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us, and he, we will serve you. If you think back, um, Rehoboam's father was Solomon. Um, Solomon didn't get rich all by himself. He probably taxed like crazy, I'm guessing. And that was what they were talking about here. So he said, Depart for three days and come back to me. And the people departed. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father, Solomon, while he was still lived, and said, How do you advise me to answer these people? And they spoke to him, saying, If you will be a servant to these people today, and serve them, and answer them, and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But he rejected the advice which the elders had given him, and consulted the young men who had grown up with him, who stood before him. And he said to them, What advice do you give? How should we answer this people who have spoken to us, saying, Lighten the yoke which your father put on us? <coughs> then the young man who had grown up with him spoke to him, saying, 
Thus you should speak to this people who have spoken to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter on us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. And now therefore my father put a heavy yoke on you. I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges, or some other uh, versions say scorpions. Yes, depends which one you read, John. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king had directed, saying, Come back to me the third day. Then the king answered the people roughly and rejected the advice which the elders had given him. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, for I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, for I will chastise you with scorpions. So here we have a, a new king, um, someone who was young, I'm assuming. I don't know how old he was, but relatively inexperienced in his new job. And he went to some, uh, some people for advice. Uh, first of all, he asked the old men who had advised his father. And if you remember, his father was the wisest man who ever lived. So it should have told you something if he went to the advisors of the wisest man that ever lived. And they advised him to lead as a servant. And if he did so, the people would gladly serve him. Then he turned to his peers. Um, the young men who had grown up with him, that he associated with, and they instead advised, advised him to rule with a heavy hand. What his father did in moderation, he should do in excess, uh, make the yokes heavier. And I'm not sure their reasons why they would have given him this advice. Um, did they think they had personal uh, gain to, from that? I don't know. Um, but either way, King Rehoboam foolishly took the advice of the younger instead of the older and wiser. And if we were to read on, we would see that the results of that choice caused the kingdom to be divided, uh, the people rebelled, and there was a divided kingdom after that with their own king. So the results of choosing poor advice. Pilate was another man who chose to ignore good advice from someone wiser than himself. Um, we know the story, Matthew chapter 7 where Pilate's wife sent him a message saying that he should have nothing to do with this just man, referring to Jesus. But Pilate chose instead to listen to the people, and he ended up crucifying the Son of God by choosing to ignore good advice. Now, we've all heard of Dave Ramsey. He's made the comment that every time he ignores his wife's advice, it costs him $10,000. And that's been a few years ago, so maybe that, maybe that number is up some... So men, let's not forget that God has given us a help me, someone close to us, um, to help choose our decisions. We also have the privilege of being in a church setting, where hopefully we can find someone that we can trust for advice. It doesn't have to be leadership, but someone um, whose advice over the years has proved sound. If you don't have someone like that, I would advise you to ask God to help you find someone. I remember as a young man uh, moving to Pennsylvania before we were married, um, searching for some advice in business, financial matters. The opportunity I had for a job took me into territory that I was not familiar with. I remember the frustration of trying to find advice I could trust or even to find someone who was open enough to give advice. There appeared to be plenty of knowledge, plenty of experience, but an extreme reluctance to share any of it. We eventually uh, went to an accountant many of them had used, and the accountant told us he operates in gray areas. He said he would go to whatever degree of gray accounting that we were comfortable with. Um, whatever, we, whatever we told him, you know, we want this, we want that, he'll do whatever he wants. 
So we kind of learned why people were kind of slow to share advice because they were using that account as well. Um, I don't know. Anyway, leave that, go home with them. But uh, a lot of my early memories in that new community are a little clouded because my wife and I felt a lack of people we could trust for advice. And that was um, not, a, not a good experience. Thankfully, as our circle of friends widened over the years, a lot of that changed, but I remember initially um, just really, really wishing for someone that as a young man I could turn to to get solid advice, and there simply was not in that area. There's much wisdom to be gained in seeking godly advice. Uh, third point, how will this choice affect me spiritually? Will it draw me closer to God, or will it draw me further away? In Hebrews 11, we have just a brief account of Moses there. Hebrews 11, verse 24. By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater than the riches of the treasures in Egypt, for he looked for reward, to a reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So we think of Moses here. Uh, Moses, we know the story. Um, he was rescued by Pharaoh's daughter, uh, taken to live a life of luxury and ease in the palace. And he had a choice to make. He could continue the life of ease and pleasure that came with not just living in the palace, but actually being a prince. As Pharaoh's daughter, he would have been a prince. Or he could turn his back on all that and to follow God. You know that he did make the choice to follow God, and then God later used him in a mighty way to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. And I had the thought, you know, had Moses stayed in Egypt, as a prince of Pharaoh's daughter, he would very likely have drowned in the Red Sea, uh, leading the Egyptian army as they pursued the Israelites, who would have then been led by somebody else. Uh, yeah, random thought there. But had Moses chose to reject God, he would not have stopped God's plan to, to deliver the Israelites, but he would have certainly missed being part of it and very likely would have been destroyed with the rest of the Egyptians. Number four, how does this affect my family? How is this choice that I'm looking at making? Um, how does it affect those around me? Uh, Genesis chapter 13, the following chapters tell the story of Abraham and his nephew Lot. Uh, we know the story. They decide to separate because their combined um, flocks and herds were just too big. The, the land couldn't support them. And so Abraham gave Lot a choice. Do you want to go this way? Do you want to go that way? And Lot selfishly chose what appeared to be a better choice for his family and livestock. He looked towards the well-watered plains in the valley, and Abraham instead went, followed where God directed him. And we jump ahead a few years, we see the different results of those choices. Um, God blessed Abraham's choice by giving him land as far as he could see, and descendants beyond number. Lot's choice, unfortunately, included the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he ended up moving there, um, and his family suffered greatly from the sinful surroundings that they encountered there. Uh, they were captured by enemy nations, taken away as captives. His two daughters grew up in one of the most wicked, perverted cities of that time. The family had to flee and leave everything, lose everything, 
when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and they lost all that they would have had, their whole reason for moving there is they had too much stuff. They lost it all. Uh, Lot even lost his wife when she became a pillar of salt <clears throat> when she turned to look back at what she was leaving behind. Lot's daughters got drunk, got him drunk, uh, committed incest with him, and the results of that were the Amorites and the Moabites, two enemies of Israel that plagued them for generations to come. So we look at what appeared to be a good decision for Lot. Um, he was choosing wisely. Um, he thought getting what was better um, seemed good at the time, but ended up greatly costing him his family and continuing uh, a negative effect on down through the generations simply as a result of his choice. I wondered sometimes what would have happened had Abraham moved down there. Um, would he have encountered the same kind of thing? And I, I don't think so, because I think Abraham had some stronger personal boundaries set than Lot did. But either way, uh, Lot, Lot ended up pretty much losing um, everything, his possessions, his family, everything, because of that choice. Number five, is God opening or closing doors? Are we willing to follow God's timeline and move ahead as he leads? And... Um, Acts 16, time is moving on here. I'm going to skip reading this for time, but basically this was where Paul and Silas were asking God for directions, and through um, dreams, through the Spirit, God, God closed one door and God opened another door. They ended up going an entirely different direction from what they had planned to do. And I don't know exactly how that happened in a, in a practical sense, but we do know that we do see that Paul was very open to follow God's leading, and he was very flexible when God changed his plans. And I think that's a, a, good, a good thing for us to look at as well when we're making decisions. Are we, are we open to what God would have that isn't necessarily obvious to us? Just a few practical points for making decisions. Um, be open to God's leadings. Um, too often the problem we have is our minds are already made up, when, and we hope God and everybody else kind of agrees with what we have decided here. I came across a writing here that I think is worth reading um, by George Mueller, and he describes how he reaches a decision. He said, I seek at the beginning to get my heart in such a state that it has no will of its own. I then find it's usually but a little way to the knowledge of what God's will is. Having done this, I seek the will of the Spirit of God through the Word of God. The Holy Spirit will never guide us contrary to the Scriptures. Next, I take into account different circumstances. These often plainly indicate God's will in connection with his word. Next, I ask God in prayer to reveal his will to me outright. Thus, through prayer to God, the study of his word and circumstances, I come to a deliberate judgment according to the best of my ability and knowledge. And then, if my mind is at peace, I proceed accordingly. This is quite a process here that he goes through. And certainly, we don't want to take his process for what color socks we wear in the morning, or which item we order off the drive through menu. Um, sometimes the car ahead of us, I think, is taking that process when they're ordering, but it seems that way. Um, but for bigger decisions, um, marriage, house purchase, moving to a new area, new church, whatever you feel, whatever's considered a large decision, we might learn something here from Mr. Mueller's advice. Probably the most difficult is that his very first step is getting your heart in such a state that it has no will of its own. That is very difficult. That's half the battle being open to God's leading and willing to lay aside our own. Uh, be intentional. Uh, Joshua told the children of Israel, choose you this day whom you will serve. 
Don't hesitate when God shows you a, uh, a, an answer. Do it now. Um, think of Gideon putting out two fleeces. God was very patient with him. On the other hand, when the children of Israel uh, were at the Jordan River, the commandment was to step into the water. God, God commanded them to make the step, and as they move ahead, he would part the water. Uh, again, parents, teach your children. Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. We think of Moses. Moses' parents had probably only three, four, five years to teach him what determined his life later on. Starts in small things. Um, what dress do I wear today? What do I want for breakfast? Learning to make choices in these non-essential things will help children not to stumble over larger decisions later in life. Let the size of their decisions increase along with their age. Allow them to make a poor decision when the consequences are minor and don't shield them from the, from the uh, results of that poor decision. Parents who always cover their child's mistakes teach them that life has no consequences. Helping children to learn from small mistakes and bad decisions will help them hopefully avoid bigger ones later. Sometimes we're afraid of making a wrong decision, that we struggle to make a right one. We're so scared that we're going to make the wrong one that we just can't make the right one. Uh, a lot of us use a phone or a GPS for directions, and I occasionally argue with mine about which is the best way to go. And usually we go her way, sometimes we go mine. And most times it just simply recalculates. Um, I continue on my way, and sometimes I lose a few minutes, gain a few minutes, but ultimately we get where we want to go. And sometimes I think it's like that with God. Um, God can use some of our decisions, and we make this one, okay, that's fine, we'll just recalculate a bit and we'll keep going. And um, he's, that's good with that. It's not, it's not a, a life-or-death decision. Other times, the, um, the GPS says, make a U-turn. It's saying, you know, if you keep going this way, there's just no way you're going to end up where you want to be. At that point, you have to simply turn around. Um, sometimes God says, turn around, you're going the wrong way. Think of Jonah. Jonah, Jonah was faced with a U-turn. So in closing, we've heard the saying, sow a thought, reap an action, sow an action, reap a habit, sow a habit, reap a character, sow a character, reap a destiny. What's, what starts with very small choices end up eventually determining our destiny. So let's take the time to make wise choices that will get us to where we want to go. Let's stand for prayer and then remain standing for the final song. Let's pray. God, thank you that you've entrusted us with the power of choice. Thank you that you have given us your word, and you have placed godly people in our lives that we can turn to when facing difficult decisions. Help us to seek to make wise choices that will positively affect the future of our lives and also those that we are responsible for. Guide and direct us as we go from here. <coughs> Grant us safety until we meet again. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.